Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. You know, the private sector is a very, very diverse group. They all fulfill different functions, and I think that's the same with um, charities and social enterprises. Does that mean charity is a bad thing? Absolutely not. Uh, does it mean that social enterprise is the solution to everything in the world? Of course it is not, but it seems to me that the problems that we face in the world are going to require some um, uh, collaboration. And I think that when uh, that social entrepreneurs who are experimenting with new business models could be the crucible in which new ideas and new ways of doing business and new ways of addressing old problems can be found. I'm very pleased today to introduce Liam Black. Liam's former CEO of 15 and one of the UK's best-known social entrepreneurs. In 2008, he co-founded Wavelength Companies Limited, which works with ambitious business leaders, entrepreneurs, and social innovators to help build their knowledge, insights, reliance, connectivity, and networks. He is a member of the National Endowment for Science, Technology, and the Arts, and speaks and writes widely on leadership, enterprises, social change. He's the author of There's No Business Like Social Business, and more recently, The Social Entrepreneurs A to Z. Well, thank you very much, Liam, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's a great uh, privilege to have an opportunity to speak to you and learn some lessons and get some insights from your experience, frontline of social entrepreneurship. I guess a good place to start might be if you could tell me a little bit about Wavelength, your latest focus of activity and, and how you came to, to set that up and what it's all about. Well, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to speak. So Wavelength is a company that I created uh, seven years ago now with two friends, Adrian Simpson and Jessica Stack. And it uh, came out of my personal desire in my 50s uh, that I would stop leading a particular social enterprise, uh, which at that time was uh, Jamie Oliver's 15 and before that in Liverpool with the FRC group and that in my 50s I would try and play a small part in building the broader ecosystem for up-and-coming social entrepreneurs um, and so that's what we've been trying to do so um, Wavelength is best understood as a sort of leadership club and every year we bring together um, over 100 leaders um, about 60% of those leaders come from big business so this year, our, our members are the likes of Pret-a-Manger, the BBC, um, lots of financial services business, Peel Ports, who own loads of ports and airports, um, the London Stock Exchange Group, all sorts of companies. And the other 40 are the leaders of um, social enterprises, housing association, healthcare mutuals, that sort of thing. And then over the course of the year, we organize for them a series of conferences, seminars, visits around themes that we know they're interested in as leaders, how to create brilliant customer service, how to um, create great places to work, as well as more personal stuff about how to how to cope in you know, relentless change, how to deal with the disruption that digital stuff is bringing. And then a thread that runs through all of that is what is the role of business in the world and what are the role of these individual leaders in using enterprise as a force for social good. So that's our main activity in the UK. And in fact, I've broken off to talk to you on this podcast, just writing the brochure uh, for next year. Uh, we also do um, uh, an event in the States every year called Wavelength USA, where we take 25 CEOs from all over the world and we go off and have a look at 
you know, outstandingly good practice um, in business, including a trip to um, Silicon Valley. And we organ- also organized um, some bespoke activity where companies will say to us, oh, we have a particular issue, whether that's what they how they could do CSR better or um, they want to get their head around. I mean, at the moment, organizing one for an engineering company around robotics and the Internet of Things. We operate a cross-subsidy model. Uh, which means that social entrepreneurs who take part on the program as equals with the um, uh, with the uh, corporate leaders uh, pay much less than the corporates which who can afford it. Whereas even you know, even really successful social entrepreneurs, money is always tight. Often investment in their own development and connectivity and power and strength falls down the list. So by offering it at what we think is a absolutely unbelievable discount and great value. We're able to have had, as we've over the last six years, I don't know, a couple of hundred social entrepreneurs and social enterprise and nonprofit leaders come through our program. So, so we're trying through supporting people's learning and their insights, uh, their new connectivity, develop the social enterprise world. I'm also involved with two impact funds, which have been created by alumni of our program, one created by a private banker called Richard Brass, which is called Impact Ventures UK, which is a £40 million fund, a 10-year capital fund that invests in existing social enterprises that want to scale. And the other one is Ignite, which is funded by Centrica, the big energy business, and that gets behind entrepreneurs with a strong energy-related and socially useful um, uh, idea or business. So through um, you know the, the sort of propaganda of my writing, of my blogs, through the mentoring and the support that we do through um, Wavelength and then through the making capital available through those two funds, that's, that's the way I'm trying to help the social entrepreneur um, movement. And then, as I always have, uh, since I've, you know, I'm a, you know, like a lot of social entrepreneurs, a bit of a narcissist, like the sound of my own voice. But I've always tried to use that voice um, uh, to speak honestly about social entrepreneurship uh, and to always speak on behalf of social entrepreneurs uh, who, you know, um, are as wacky and strange and maverick and brilliant as any group of people, um, but have taken on some really audacious, difficult challenges in the world. Um, And so speaking uh, with their voice honestly about what works, what doesn't work, and offer the bullshit that's talked about social enterprise globally. So that's what I'm trying to do, use my voice, use the capital that we've been able to get, and use the platform that I've created through Wavelength to offer uh, these social entrepreneurs alongside corporate leaders an amazing opportunity to develop. I understand why you're very busy, Liam. That sounds like quite a full plate. Let's get to the heart of of, of one of the um, important questions I see, at least. Charities, non-profits and social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. You're very committed to social entrepreneurship and you've talked about that. What is the role and potential of social entrepreneurship to deal with problems in the world vis-a-vis charities, would you say? One of the things that I think it may be less than it was in the past, but there was a sort of a while where the the, the, the idea that social enterprise, i.e., you know, businesses that trade uh, in real markets and make profits in order to fund innovation and uh, pursue their social agenda, that in some ways these would supplant traditional charities, um, or and 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 often as well there was a slight sort of. Um, 
unspoken, sometimes articulated belief that social enterprises were quote-unquote better than traditional charities which were reliant on philanthropy and the kindness of strangers. I, I think that's nonsense. I mean, I think that in the same way that um, you know, the private sector is a very, very diverse group um, from you know the one man and his band who clean my windows through to enormous multinationals like Procter & Gamble and Shell and Rolls-Royce and so on. Um, they all fulfill different functions. And I think that's the same with um, charities and social enterprises. So, you know, I think there will always be a role for um, uh, sort of emergency relief. I think there will always be stuff where there really isn't a market, where it's really difficult to see how you could create a business and that that, that work will always need to be hugely subsidized or maybe 100% subsidized. Uh, by donations and grants, that's absolutely fine. And it seems to me as long as they're run efficiently and really, really well, there's no problem with that at all. I, I, I'm not very dogmatic about all of this. Um, I, I come at it from a very, you know, as I get older, um, I'm soon to be a grandfather and I'm sort of embracing my grumpiness and my sort of, you know, I, I don't have a big theology of this. I don't have a big doctrine. I leave definitions and all of that stuff to other people. Those are conversations well worth having. You know, I spent a lot of my 30s and 40s arguing about all of that. I don't don't do it anymore. I was really personally inspired by the social enterprise model in my early 30s. I thought for me and for the company I was in at the time, which which was a charity, the Furniture Resource Center in Liverpool, that, you know, finding ways of creating products and services that we could sell and in the selling of those things, we would be able to achieve our charitable purpose, which for me has always been about helping people on the wrong side of the tracks get a fair crack of the whip, if I may mix up my metaphors. That's what drives me. I'm not driven, you know, I'm not driven by any great um, uh, sort of theological desire to have a grand theory about the economy. I'm, I'm not that smart, to be honest. It's not, I'm not smart enough and it doesn't interest me. I'm interested in how I've been able to, in a small way, through business, create opportunities for people who usually get uh, left out. And I discovered in the doing of that, uh, making many, many mistakes, that uh, when it's done right, it can be truly, uh, for me, uh, liberational, if that's a word. And certainly uh, uncoupling me from the need to get involved in the slog of fundraising and a bit of the conspiracy that I was involved in anyway with uh, funders when you're trying to get free money out of people. And I, I found for me that being able to devote my time and whatever intelligence and entrepreneurial flair I have to developing, you know, world-class products and services for um, whether it was unemployed guys in Liverpool or whether it was the young people at uh, 15 or it's now for the many, many social entrepreneurs that um, I try and serve, that's been great. Um, But does that mean charity is a bad thing? Absolutely not. Uh, does it mean that social enterprise is the solution to everything in the world? Of course it is not, but it seems to me that the problems that we face in the world are going to require some um, uh, collaboration. And I think that when uh, that social entrepreneurs who are experimenting with new business models could be the crucible in which new ideas and new ways of doing business and new ways of addressing old problems can be found. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that, that that's where I come at it. I mean, I speak at a lot of conferences and I always get asked the question, Liam, can you define what a social enterprise is? And I always refuse to do it now. Yeah. I, I find it boring. 
And I'm not saying it's not important to have sure. the definitions. If you're a policymaker, yeah. if you're in the cabinet office, if you're, you know, uh, yeah. like that, I can see how it's important for tax reasons and all of that. It's, but for me, it's I want to devote my time and what little mental energy and intellectual power is left to me to really support in as practical a way as I can social entrepreneurs. And I yeah. think that to the extent yeah. that I can help the sort of policy discussions that go on, it will be by trying to live out in a very practical way through how we deploy capital, how we develop the leadership amongst social enterprises. That would, I think that would be my contribution rather than chucking my tuppence halfpenny's worth into a sort of more theological, ideological debate. Sure, no, absolutely. And I, 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 it's very much uh, what this uh, podcast is about as well, yeah. looking at you know, change making and people who are you know, creating change and and. Clearly, there's a lot of innovation and a lot of change, and it's a very broad church. Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. one one of the issues for uh, change makers, if you call them as such, uh, is that often the uh, funding environment isn't so necessarily so flexible. So you find people in situations, it seems, where they're trying to attract different kinds of funding, and that yeah. almost as if they need parallel organisations. It's quite complex, you know. So this this has actually got a really important element to it beyond the kind of theology of it. Uh, yeah, I think. That fundraising for charities is a very honourable profession. You know, I've done a lot of it over the years, and I have family and friends who that's their career is fundraising for fantastic charitable activities. I think that the danger of it, or the thing, the big watch out for it, is that what you're trying to do gets distorted by the way in which you get your money. So, you know, I remember when I was in Liverpool and, you know, we used to get a lot of free money through Objective One, which was a big European pot of money aimed at very poor parts of the European community, of which at that time Merseyside was one. And the amount of time and effort it took to get the money, the amount of reporting that we needed to do, the absolutely mad way in which you got the money and it came in arrears and all this sort of stuff. You know, we, we literally had to have people working full time just on that. And for every you know, minute that my attention was taken up on yet another cock up on our, you know, from Brussels or the government office is a minute I was not spending on achieving our social goal. Uh, and I, I have found that, you know, being involved in you know, real business activity in Liverpool and there when I was with Jamie at 15 and in the company I have now, being able to focus all my time, all my energy on how can we make these products and services better to achieve our social goal and become better with our customers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is a much better use of my time uh, than when I used to have to come down from Liverpool and run around the city of London, you know, blagging cash out of people. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, it's not right or wrong. It's just that it's just what our experience was. And, um, uh, you know, we were the product of a particular set of political circumstances and historical circumstances. It's not for everyone. But for those that, you know, I see come down this road, you know, I see you interviewing people like Sophie Tranchell and other veterans like that before, as well as the sort of new generation that's up and coming. I think for the right people with the right business model, with the right mindset, um, I think it can be a very powerful way of achieving social purpose. Yeah, absolutely. That's very articulate. Um, <laughs> you've put it very clearly there. And I, you know, I have done an interview with uh, Larry English, who from Homeless International, who has 
gone from being a charity into a social enterprise. That's a very interesting story and illustrates many issues around the relationship, I guess, between them and between different kinds of funding and, and some of those issues you raised. I just feedback, I've just done a couple of interviews which raised some questions which I'd like to just put to you. But I was surprised, really. One was a, a social entrepreneur in Uganda when I asked him whether he defines himself as a social entrepreneur and he's one of Forbes under 30 or something like the last few years. He's, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He said that he was very concerned that a lot of, uh, he didn't quite use this language, but a lot of good change making or social activity was being crowded out by the need to make profits. And that so many of the funders and that this was just a huge environment in which he was operating that if you're not, you know, going to be profitable and scalable, that it's very difficult. And he said he's seen lots of good enterprise going to the ground or not not actually, you know, being able to grow. And and another interview at the same time, uh, well, a few days earlier with a, you know, very, very experienced, I'd say, a guy from a mental health environment who has set up a a social enterprise and talking about the the, the difficulties he had raising money. And this is an American perspective more but yeah. I would have thought this guy with you know 15 years track record and so forth and he was talking about you know fragmentation of the different sources of funding the challenges with foundations in particular and going for all these competitions and just getting that initial capital and getting off the ground yeah. being no, just such a battle and, and both of them were saying that really a lot of their time is put in today just trying to get money for the organization and I'm very mindful of what you said about the you know some of the challenges that you faced but this was yeah. a, a, another perspective and I'm just wondering, you know, how you see this evolving and what your experience is on that. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that uh, I notice is sometimes that uh, people who identify themselves as social entrepreneurs sort of can often sort of speak in a way which indicates they think they're in this kind of rarefied atmosphere, which quote unquote normal entrepreneurs don't have. Whether you're, you know, raising money to set up a mental health organization or you're raising money to start a a donut stall. You've got to get money from somewhere, and I, you know, and you know, people uh, in the private who set up for-profit companies will remortgage their house, will borrow money off their mum or their dad, will take a big bank loan to do it. Most of them fail, um, and uh, you know, many of them don't get off the ground at all. So I think where you get the money from, how you get traction, what your business model is, those are not unique to social entrepreneurs by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, so I think we need to, a bit of a reality check on that. I think it is true that there, and I, I wonder whether we are getting through it, but it certainly was true maybe since, certainly in the UK, since Blair was elected in 97, when the whole language changed and you know words like social entrepreneur, social enterprise, social exclusion, all of those became more common parlance. I remember us sitting up in Liverpool in the sort of uh, mid-90s thinking, well, they're talking about all these things like social entrepreneurs and stuff. Maybe we should start talking about ourselves like that as well. So part of it was, you know, that's where, where it seems to be going. Let's let's get in there. Um, and I think that there certainly has been a sense of, you know, um, oh, well, why, why can't you make profit? Why can't you become financially viable and financially sustainable? Um, and I think lots of things won't. I, but I do believe, as a sort of general principle, that, that asking um, someone who wants to create an enterprise to address a particular social goal to say, demonstrate to me why you have to have free money forever. 
Um, uh, you know, there might be a really good reason for that, but sometimes it can be uh, a reason for just not working hard enough and not being imaginative enough about how what, what an enterprising solution um, might look like. Um, and I think that uh, I don't think money is the shortage of money. I mean, you know, uh, fifty million pounds myself and a couple of other people raised for these two funds in about eighteen months. There is loads of money around. Particularly, I don't, I don't know about Uganda. Certainly in the UK, certainly in America, the money um, um, is there. I think the ways in which you get access to that um, uh, have changed, and I think there is definitely a debate to be had. I mean, within the UK, there are some fierce critics of the sort of impact investment, social investment uh, movement. Um, you know, who are saying that it's kind of you know dominated by a load of sort of city boys. Uh, that the interest rates that are being charged are too high, uh, that there's no pipeline, and that that's not what community-based social entrepreneurs require. And I think that there's some truth in, in all of those sorts of things. I think what there isn't is enough honesty. So the people who say that, who are very critical, say, of Impact Ventures UK, which I helped create, uh, which is a capital growth fund. You know, we're not giving money away. We are looking for enterprises that can grow and be profitable and pay us back, so we can pay um, our investors back. Are people who are against that saying? And as I said, they've got some really legitimate critiques about it. But I, I think it's worth putting on the record: none of the critiques that are made externally about the two funds I'm involved in are anything like as biting and as cutting as the critiques we make of ourselves internally. Um, we're very, very aware that, you know, there's, there's still a long way to go. But are the people who are against that saying, uh, we just want free money? We just want free money. Give us free money or give us really sort of soft money that, that isn't looking for any sort of return for seven to ten years, I've heard people talk about. And that's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. But that doesn't strike me as you are running an enterprise. You know, uh, uh, if you were running a private company that, you know, unless you're a tech startup in the Silicon Valley where you seem to be able to go for a long time losing money. But in the real world or in the normal world that we all live in, if you are going seven years or 10 years without turning a profit or really creating a, a sustainable business model, you probably don't have a business. You may have a really interesting community organization. You may have a really, really interesting way of approaching tackling unemployment or exclusion or bad housing or, or whatever it is. And, and I, I, I'm, I have an enormous amount of sympathy with that. I wish there was loads and loads of free money um, um, out there. There isn't. It's not there. Um, and so when I get you know people pushing back on me hard, which is fine, at conferences about you know why are you involved in these investment funds game, I'm saying, well, we are very clear who we're after. You know, we are not a philanthropic organization. We believe that, you know, capital deployed in the right way, which has a fair rate of return, which brings with it an enormous amount of technical and other support, which is, you know, probably the most important thing, actually, that we give our portfolios. Um, that that's one way. We are dealing with a particular part of the market. We are not dealing with, you know, startups, um, that are you know really struggling to get traction on housing estates or really difficult parts of the country. We're not, um, and, and all power to those people who are doing that. But it is a different conversation. Yeah. It's like it's like saying I said this at a debate recently that to sort of say there's a you know there is a social enterprise world. There kind of is in the same way that they kind of is a private sector. But but you know what has the you know one man and his bucket 
window cleaner got in common with Unilever. You obviously touched, uh, you know, something that's a heart of the debate, you know, and as you say, you know, it's, it's a debate and it's good to, to have. I mean, I, I spoke to uh, Ian McMillan, who's a professor at Wharton, and he's written a book called The Social Entrepreneur's Playbook. But he has a very interesting little uh, tool in there, uh, which is called the Aspirations Cascade. I don't know whether you've come across it. But basically, I mean, his idea is whether or not you're going to be able to get any money on the ground, you know, from selling your services or working maybe in an ecosystem where somebody might yeah. provide you with money that the, by the very act of asking these questions helps you build a stronger organization but he has this model yeah. which basically starts out with you know at the top of the scale in a certain sense i mean in the, the closer to is what he calls a market scaler for profit social enterprise so that is yeah. if the money's there and then if you know less money then you've got what he's called the self-sustainer which is self-funding so maybe you're not going to you know be able to scale and do all of that but actually yeah. you can self-fund and below that you've got a break-even operator, which is yeah. like asset-subsidized, non-profit, then a partial leverager, and then what reliance. So this is where there's nothing there. And I spoke to somebody recently in this situation. He said, literally, if we charge 50 cents, you know, it would just a hospital kind of, a, it's a medical service, you know, for very, very poor uh, impoverished people in, in rural areas. Yeah. But by looking at it that way... I think that's it, really helpful. But again, you could do exactly the same thing with the private sector, couldn't you? And you could say, at the top of that quadrant... You might have, you know, I don't know, private equity houses or Google that are licenses to print money because they've fallen on a business model that, you know, allows them to do that. At the bottom left of that quadrant, you might have, you know, my um, <laughs> back to my window cleaner who is just about getting by, who, who makes enough money to put food on the table for himself and his family. And they are notionally in the private sector, but do they have much in common? They don't really. Would it be sensible to say there's a one-size-fits-all definition? Not really. Uh, is there a funding model that would that would include the window cleaner and Blackstone? No, there isn't. And I think that, and in the same way, they won't be in the social entrepreneur uh, world. That there will be all sorts of different. Approaches all sorts of um, based on the personality of the people involved, based on the politics, based on the geography, etc., uh, etc. Et and one is not better than the other. Uh, it's just that I think there are, we're all in our own way trying to find a way in which we can add social value in the world. And I think that you know uh, the power to change. Have you heard of that in the in the UK? It's a 150 million pound lottery. Uh, backed fund that's going to get behind community businesses, which is, as far as I understand, are sort of, you know, fairly soft loans or grants. Absolutely fantastic. You know, and I really hope that they do really, really well, because coming out at the end of their pipeline may well be things that we could invest in from Impact Ventures UK. And I, I think that's what we need to try and create in the, in the UK is a thriving market where you know there are startups there are um, grassroots organizations that come up that get the right sort of money which they need free money hybrid money soft loans bit of debt are able to grow and then get to a point where they can come to the likes of ivy uk or big issue invest or and hopefully there'll be more and more um, in the market to get the capital that they need to scale and increase their impact and it's not to say that they all have to do that i think there is a bit of a you know can be a bit of a sort of um, fetish, fetishization um, of scale. You know, I, I, I wrote a book last uh, year, the A to Z, of the Social Entrepreneurs A to Z, in which I said that sometimes actually scaling is the best way to undermine your impact. 
uh, because you just become much broader, but a lot shallower. And I gave an example of a white goods recycling company that I set up in Liverpool with some people. And, um, you know, I put a lot of pressure on the operational people to grow sales and increase production. And they did. The downsize was more of these bloody things kept exploding and fl flooding poor women's kitchens. And, you know, uh, one metric was going really well, the income and the, uh, the levels of production. But our social impact very pissed off uh, people on low incomes who had parted with their hard-earned 20 quid in order to get a product from us. The impact was going down. So I, I don't fetishize scale. But, but there's also, I think, you know, I, I am, find it also compelling to say, well, if you are wanting to find a solution to homelessness, helping 10 homeless people is not enough, is it? Um, or if you're wanting to find a solution to clean water, having, you know, one or two interesting projects in Africa or Vietnam or wherever might be nice, but it's not going to make a dent in the problem. So I think we've got to move away from all sorts of, you know, judgment about what's best, what's better, and just say there will be different approaches. There will be social entrepreneurs that have the talent, the skill, the luck, uh, which is very important, the access to networks, the access to capital, which allows them to scale and have a big impact. There will be others who, who, do, who don't have those, who have different skills, who will be doing a fantastic little job at a, a local or a regional or a city-wide scale, and that's absolutely fine too. I mean, again, look at the private sector. You know, the, the, it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly SMEs. You know, the big you know, companies employing more than 5,000, let alone companies employing more than 50,000 or 100,000, they're a small number at the sort of top of the pyramid. Most of them are employing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten people. And I think that will, may well be the way in which the social enterprise um, sector in the UK goes. Uh, but I would, I would also hope that, you know, there will be lots that will break out and, and become scaled because, you know, that, that's what I like. That's my personal preference. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's right or wrong. It just means that's what is. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. What about the transferability of, of knowledge and insight? Yeah. And that's something that interested me at the beginning of this podcast is, you know, uh, people all around the world looking at s similar kinds of problems. And, yeah. um, and you know, in, in some cases, you know, reinventing the wheel, you know, working yeah. on how, 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 how well is, 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 do you think knowledge transferred generally? And what, what do you think would help? How well is it transferred? That's a really good question. I would say um, uh, okay, not great. Um, I mean, I've been involved in this for a long time. I mean, in the um, early, I think it was 2000, maybe 1999, something like that, uh, in the days when government was giving a lot of money away, we had created in Liverpool a company called the Cat's Pajamas, which was a, uh, a consultancy service, really, to help people understand what we were doing in Liverpool. You know, once we, we began this process of moving from a fundraised-based charity to a sales-based social enterprise, um, a lot of people found that very interesting. We'd had loads of people coming to see us, so we decided to um, capitalize on that. So we created a business called the Cats Pajamas, um, and we had hundreds and hundreds of people come to Merseyside to see what we were doing and, and some other social entrepreneurs um, in the region. And we ran events at Africa and, uh, and North America as well. And that was very explicitly about how do we, as sort of practitioners, right in the mess of it, um, how do we help 
people who want to come down the road that we've gone down understand whether that's the right route for them or not. Mm. Uh, so we've been involved, and you know, my first book that I wrote with Jeremy Nichols, you know, there's no business like social business, was an attempt to help share that knowledge uh, with uh, people um, and basically say to most people, don't do it. <laughs> you right. know, don't do it. It's very hard to create a, um, a, a real business that has, you know, the, um, the traction to, to uh, sustain itself and, and to grow. So, I, so and then and through wavelength as well. That's what we try to do. You know, we we visit quite a few social enterprises. We get a lot of social entrepreneur speakers in to speak to all of our community, the corporate leaders as well as the uh, the social enterprise and nonprofit um, leaders. And, and I, I I think it needs to be um, um, a lot better. I think part of the problem is often people who are involved in intermediary bodies all over the world necessarily aren't the practitioners um you know and i and i think that what i find is that what people loved about the cat's pajamas and i think what they really like about what we're doing through wavelength is that it's practitioner to practitioner um and there isn't someone in between trying to put a grand theory on top of it but it's real sort of warts and all we tried this it didn't work we tried this it worked what might that look like in your company for god's sake don't make the mistake that we made and i'm not saying that's the only way there will be academics and there'll be consultancies that will have a lot of stuff uh to offer uh but i think that the peer-to-peer um learning is very very powerful um and that and that's certainly the model that we use um we used at the cat's pajamas and we're using through um uh, wavelength um, uh, at the moment, um, I, and to be honest, I don't. I'm not that connected anymore to the sort of formal social enterprise um, uh, infrastructure. Um, uh, the, 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 there was the World Forum of Social Enterprise, wasn't there in Milan yeah. uh, recently? Um, uh, I wasn't at that. I'm sure there was a lot of really good stuff um, that went on there. How many practitioners were there? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's expensive to go there. And if you're running a business, yeah. taking time out to go to that has to be at the expense of something else. So you have to be at a certain scale or for there to be a really compelling business reason um, to go. I mean, I was invited to speak at the Canadian one last year, but they weren't going to pay me. You know, they mm. wanted me to fly economy all the way to Calgary uh. pretty much a week. <laughs> and, and I understood, you know, yeah. like I, if, if I'd had a Star Trek tractor beam and I could have just appeared in Calgary and done my thing and then been beamed back into the business here, that would have been fine. But I just can't afford uh, to, uh, you know, not be paid and fly over there and particularly on economy. And I'm six foot five, you know, my God, <laughs> that would be a health risk at my age. Um so, uh, no, it's, it, I'm sure they do uh, really, really good stuff, but it's not something that I'm directly involved in, and I would much rather be supporting social entrepreneurs with really practical stuff, advice, opening doors, mentoring, access to capital, um, access to world-class learning. That's fa- fascinating. That's very interesting. What, what is your vision for the next three to five years, or how do you, do you look at what, where you want Wavelands to go, Liam? I've never been someone, to be honest, who has um, uh, uh, big long-term visions. To be honest with you, um, I'm 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 a very simple man, and I uh, so so I would uh, so I, in five years' time, God help me, I'll be sixty. <laughs> and how did that happen? 
Uh, I would, so for, as a personal vision for myself, I would like to have the opportunity not to have to carry on, you know, um, uh, working full time if I choose to. So at a personal level as that, I've got a grandchild on the way. I, hopefully I'll have more by then. So that would be very important to me. In terms of the business, I want us to continue to be, you know, the best chance for social enterprise leaders in terms of the quality of the learning, the connectivity, the resilience building that we are able to offer them. And I, and I think I think we're really, really good at that. We are working on some new ideas that we're going to bring to market um, uh, next year. Uh, so I think we'll in five years' time, we'll look pretty much the same. Uh, we are mulling over whether or not we get lots of opportunities and offers to open in other countries and do all of that. I'm a bit too old to do it. My business partners have got young children and don't particularly want to do it. So I think we'll just carry on doing what we're doing, small, perfectly formed, maybe get a bit bigger, but always with our eye on let's be the world's best at this. All right, that's a great vision, and I wish you the very best of success with that. And a final question. It's been a long journey, Liam. What inspires yeah. you? What keeps you inspired when things are difficult? Well, I'll tell you what inspires me. This week, uh, I've been at two events that I uh, that I spoke at. One was uh, linked to the Ignite uh, Investment Fund, where the current crop of 10 uh, startups uh, came on a three-day boot camp that the Centrica people were running for them. And I turned up uh, on one night to do a bit of a dog and pony show. And then last night, I was uh, in the city uh, emceeing an event for another 10 uh, really interesting social entrepreneurs who were um, uh, recipients of the Stephen Lloyd Award. Stephen Lloyd was a mate of mine, fantastic lawyer, uh, who died last year tragically, and we've set this thing up in his memory. And so what inspired – so this week I've seen 20 really bloody interesting social um, entrepreneurs, really passionate, you know, we're going to solve this big problem, we're going to do that. That's what keeps me going is being part of – an ecosystem where I'm forever seeing nutters who think they can change the world and uh, and then being able to help them in a small way um, is what, what keeps me going and another thing that keeps me going is uh, early nights cutting down on the alcohol now at my advanced age and some really good insoles in my shoes. Thank you so much Liam for sharing your, your insights and uh, your, your great work and I wish you the best in the future. All right, thanks a lot, Fergal. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. You bet. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.